welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. We're broadcasting to you here on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, Canada, and also on the Big Talker 1067 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, enjoying the beautiful uh, snowflakes uh, falling now upon my feet. And I'm joined, as always, by my trusty colleague who's watching the tickers, uh, Mr. Day Trader David Clement. David, how goes it? Uh, it's going well. It's going well. Um, super excited for this week's show. Um, some great conversations about uh, about cryptocurrencies. That is a hot topic. Um, about uh, the restrictions of human rights and and whether or not they're being respected uh, by governments around the world in response to the pandemic. Um, so two great guests. I'll let you actually let our listeners know who those guests are. Um, and then we, uh, we do have a, a rather pressing topic to get to um, after you intro our, uh, our two guests. Of course. So uh, we're in the first segment here and the, the next couple of segments are going to be great. Uh, we've got two amazing women who have their own expertise in different fields. So first up, we're going to have Tanya Porchnik. Uh, she is the co-founder and uh, runs the Visio Institute in Slovenia. She's the creator of the Human Freedom Index. Uh, she has been following and tracking everything related to human rights and economic freedom throughout the pandemic. Uh, so we have a great conversation with her. Tune in for that. That'll be in the second segment after the first break. And then we have Christy Harkin. She is the managing editor of tech over at Coindesk. So if you ever have had any questions about cryptocurrencies, about Bitcoin, about what all the brouhaha is concerning Elon Musk and everything he's been doing the past couple of weeks, you'll want to listen to that as well. And uh, we'll have those also video format on our website, consumerchoiceradio.com, YouTube, and in our podcast that you guys can get in the store. So uh, plenty to come in the program for the next hour. Thank you for tuning in. It's going to be a great time. David, uh, you came to the table with a lot of uh, links and some ideas. Tell us what is pressing for consumer choice in the world today. Well, in the sporting world, we have the big question of should Canada, the United States, or any other liberal democracy boycott the 2022 Winter Olympic Games in Beijing. Um, and so some of the backstory here is actually quite um, quite interesting. So earlier this week, Adam Van Couverden, uh, who is a Canadian sport hero, um, mul multiple medalist at Olympic Games, including a gold medal in kayaking. He was on Evan Solomon's show, and he said the words, the Uyghur genocide, um, which is important Ooh. because most... Sorry, David, uh, we, we've been, <laughs> been censored. <laughs> because most governments have not actually gone so far as to say the word genocide. And so um, he said it in the context of, of a debate about whether or not Canadian athletes um, should boycott the games um, so yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a huge question. I mean, it applies just as much for us athletes as it does for Canadian athletes. And so before I, I get into my take, Yael, I'd love to hear what your thought is on if a boycott is a good, 
um, a good way of protesting the treatment of the Uyghur people. Yeah, this is always something that is, at least in the last, um, let's say, year. Uh, surely with the pandemic, you know, the focus of the, the Chinese Communist Party and their influence. Uh, surely there's many Canadian citizens who have had their own problems with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, mm-hmm. As a Canadian citizen, it's probably not your ideal location <laughs> to go visit. A lot of people being snatched up who are, you know, people who work with charities and nonprofits and all the rest. And we've we've seen it come to the fore. I mean, it started with coronavirus in Wuhan, China, and seeing how the World Health Organization really was just kind of turning a blind eye. Uh, the CCP covering up uh, most of the the early things that we were getting out of there related to this this virus that has very much changed our lives. And then we see just greater aggression from the party itself. Uh, they're obviously very big now on the internet in uh, media disinformation, a lot of resources being spent on, you know, trying to reach uh, people in North America. You know, there's a, just a plethora of all these types of Chinese uh, television stations and all the rest. And of course, this is not uh, the Chinese people. This is the Chinese Communist Party. It's the government. It's something that's really important uh, to hear about. And then, of course, we've had all this reporting about many of these work camps where the Uyghur people have been uh, subjugated and um, people have likened them to concentration camps. It looks like that's exactly what it is. It surely is something that you know deserves its own UN session. That's the whole point. Uh, there's a couple of people who do track this stuff on human rights in the UN, and they just really haven't done too much on China, unfortunately. But they'll uh, they'll talk about Israel all day long. That's a whole other point. But when it comes to the boycotts, I think it's interesting. I think it it might be just a broader way to discuss the relationship between our liberal democracies and something like China, with it, which is a totalitarian state. And I, th- I think the more and more that we talk about this and discuss it and we can hear the stories, because the real people who are harmed by this are ordinary Chinese people. Uh, they're the people who are either being sent to these camps or having you know the huge Chinese firewall make sure that they can't communicate with the outside world. Uh, so it's definitely interesting. I think you know the, the Olympics are always political. Right, so this is always going to come up no matter what. Uh, we obviously don't want any hot wars or anything like this, but uh, yeah, if, if there's a better way that we can discuss how to deal with CCP, how to deal with the individual rights of all the people in China, I think something's got to be done. Yeah, I, I, for me, it's one of those things where it would be, it's so you train your whole life, um, in many of these sports, the Olympic games is the pinnacle of the sport. um, Because in many senses, they're not professional sports like the MLB or the NHL or anything like that. So you train your whole life for these, um, for this to be told that you can't go. So for my take would be on an individual level, I don't actually think that the government should tell Canadian athletes who qualify that they can't go. Um, maybe if you want to go as an individual, whether or not you get to have the maple leaf on your back, um, I don't know. That would that, that would that would be a separate conversation. But I do think that it's worth having the discussion of what does it say for us as a proud liberal democracy that we're now tiptoeing around what appears to be a pretty egregious. Um, act of 
genocide or ethnic cleansing or however you want to frame it, all of them just disgusting. And so it really does make you question the position of Canada or the United States or Great Britain for that matter, or any other liberal democracy. Uh, what do we really stand for if we aren't really, if we aren't, what, what do we stand for if we're not going to make a statement on this? Can we really say we stand for anything? Um, it's not like we don't know this is happening. I mean, this isn't, this isn't the 1936 games in Germany, um, which obviously in retrospect, I think everyone would have agreed that we should have boycotted, but in 1936, we didn't live in the information era. We did not know to the full extent uh, everything that was going on. Um, but we have boycotted games in the past. We didn't go to the 80 Olympics in, in Moscow. Um, actually, most of, of the West, for lack of a better term, didn't go to the, the 80s, uh, the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow. So there is precedent for this. Um, but regardless of whether it's whether we do go to the games or we don't, I think there has to be more said and more condemnation of the way in which the Chinese Communist Party is systematically and purposely trying to kill off a, a, a subset of the population. Um, and so I think that we have to do much more in that regard. Yeah, and I really like that, that, you know, sort of frame of mind is really trying to bring it to the fore. And uh, I have an example here from the New York Times. Uh, this is an article that was uh, written up like uh, earlier this week. Uh, the Great Firewall Cracked Briefly, A People Shined Through. Uh, we'll link to this in the show notes, consumerchoiceradio.com. But this is about the social audio app Clubhouse, uh, which David and I are very fond of and we've been hanging out on. Uh, if you don't know about it, it's started by a couple of VCs and tech bros out in California. And it's uh, been a very interesting space for sharing conversations uh, from people of all backgrounds uh, people who get together and talk about music, or they talk about art, or they talk about politics, um, all kinds of different questions. And it, I think in the last three weeks, there was a huge uptick of users coming from uh, Mandarin-speaking areas. There's Taiwan, there are people from Hong Kong, and you even had some people from mainland China. And they were coming together in rooms. Uh, many of the rooms were in Cantonese, or they were in Mandarin. And then they started discussing the repression of the government, the genocide, as it were, of the Uyghurs, uh, Tiananmen Square, 1989, censorship, crackdowns. And I was actually in one room when someone mentioned live that basically the, the firewall had been switched on and all these people were not able to access the Clubhouse app anymore. So unless you're using a VPN, a virtual private network, these people were not able to connect anymore. And they had been for, for various days People from Taiwan and Hong Kong and uh, various uh, Chinese diaspora, you know, discussing what was happening. And it was it was kind of incredible to see. Obviously, I didn't couldn't understand anything. Right. But to know that there is a space where people were discussing, they were able to break free of the censors and actually talk about what was happening. Um, as the article mentions, you know, it was a, a brief shine of light. And I think this is something that we should always center in our conversations is that the reason we care about this is because we care about liberal democracies, we care about individual rights, and we care about some of the oppression that's happening with these authoritarian countries. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And as you already alluded to, the reason why the reason why 
China matters so much. Obviously, their role in the world, our trading relationship with China. Um, but more importantly, it's the billion Chinese people who live under the thumb of this repressive um, and just grotesque government. And and from our from my perspective, and I think I can say from our perspective, anyone who cares about the ideas of liberty, freedom, and equality should care about what's going on in China. And that's really why the clubhouse example is so interesting because you got a rare glimpse of people under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party talking openly about the reality of life there. Uh, and that is uh, not as commonplace as it should be. And it's unfortunate that that crack in the in, in censorship is, is now gone and they don't have access to it anymore in the same way that they don't have access to Twitter. Um, but what we can say is there are people kind of yearning for a freer, more democratic, um, more individual liberty focused um, Chinese society. Uh, and it's just a matter of empowering those voices and ensuring that they're heard. And so hopefully other avenues beyond things like Clubhouse will provide that uh, that avenue for them. And maybe the conversation about the games can get that going as well. I think that, yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, there are other platforms that many people are, should be able to use. They can use apps like telegram and signal and i hope we can i hope we can hear a lot about this uh, there's definitely going to be a huge shift and a groundswell and the more that we can discuss what's actually happening internally within china and, and surely with the chinese communist party i think it's going to be great uh stick right here to consumer choice radio we're here on saga 960 and the big talker 1067 fm we've got an interview coming up with tanya porchnik uh, from the vizio institute awesome conversation I uh, look forward to having her on, discussing all the great topics, and uh, we'll be right back after this break. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on The Big Talker and Saga 960 AM. We're speaking with Tanya Pochnik. She is the co-founder and president of the Visio Institute, a think tank in Slovenia. She's written uh, many different topics, many different papers, uh, a great scholar to have on the program. Tanya, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you for having me. So we wanted to get uh, more of a background for our listeners as to your work, uh, what Visio Institute does, some of the things that you've been researching. I know that there are a lot of great papers that we're going to link to in our show notes so that people can read that. Uh, but give us, you know, sort of uh, some insight as to what you research on a daily basis. Yes, so uh, the Visio Institute is a public policy institute in Slovenia. We don't cover just public policy in Slovenia, but as any other EU member country, we are, you know, entangled with uh, the entire European Union. So. We cover those countries too. Many of our um, publications and other uh, products that we produce, uh, we focus on so many issues. Uh, it, it depends what is current. Uh, at the moment, of course, it's COVID-19 and human rights related to that issue. And also how, you know, what kind of measures Slovenian government and other governments in Europe are taking to um, combat the, the virus and the spread of it. 
And and on that note, uh, that that kind of access between human rights, human freedom, and the pandemic, um, in your eyes, how has the pandemic actually affected the treatment of human rights or the advancement of human freedom? So my research area, um, I forgot to mention before, is uh, focusing on, um, I would say, data approach to human rights and liberties. So it's something that is um, a recent uh, development in, in academic field, uh, some, because it's not that this has not been explored. Um, it was, but with the different tools. In the past, there were a lot of uh, studies that were based on qualitative matters, methods. Um, we, I particularly, um, with cooperation with other uh, authors and, and institutions, are now focusing more on the qualitative methods. And so we are using mixed methods mostly to evaluate how, not just how, you know, what's the level of human uh, rights in individual countries, but also what kind of impact uh, measures in individual countries have on, the, on this level. In that regard, when it comes to COVID, COVID-19, the pandemic has kind of turned everything upside down or kind of put us in a um, uncharted territory. Not really because, you know, the world has experienced um, pandemics before, but this was so long time ago that, you know, the world experienced something like this that um, maybe only some of us um, know what occurred, um, kind of can draw lessons from those uh, times. Uh, other than that, people and also decision makers are struggling, are struggling with, you know, not just what this virus is all about, um, how it develops or where it came from, you know, what it means for um, our health, but, uh, and also of course for the healthcare system but also what kind of measures to, to, to put in place, uh, especially in regard to, uh, to my research, not to trample too much on human rights and liberties of the people. Basically, what is that you know, borderline to where governments can go? And individual countries are, of course, they are united, mostly that these measures should be proportionate, should be, of course, legal, should, um, should take into consideration that, you know, there are human beings on the other side, but at the same time, every measure that is taken is kind of uh, testing that limit. Um, and uh, of course, we can all be critical of the government. Um, in hindsight, we can all say, oh, you know, this government has went too far. Um, but um, I would say that many countries um, have uh, taken a very, um, conservative route uh, when it comes to the, the, how far they have went uh, with these measures. We're speaking with Tanya Porchnik of Visio Institute here on Consumer Choice Radio. Tanya, I have a question. I'm, I'm going to be quoting from one of the papers um, that you came out with recently, Access to Information in Times of Crisis. I think it's, it's very interesting, um, definitely a lot of great comparisons. And there's a quote in there um, that's uh, blurted out towards the end. Upholding individual liberty is the prime, is the first and prime responsibility of a government in a liberal democracy. And you have many examples throughout the paper where you're talking about uh, some of the restrictions uh, that were basically taken by the Chinese Communist Party and some European countries and a lot of comparisons there. And I think this is leading us to a, a kind of new question is, 
what is the role of government in this kind of public health, you know, emergency and pandemic? Because it's a lot of us are, are seeing many powers being taken away from individuals or from localities, a lot of powers being entrenched in governments that hasn't before. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So first, uh, on the access to information, um, this was a very, I would say, hot topic at the beginning of the pandemic, of the COVID pandemic. Um, uh, as I was uh, discussing earlier, um, governments were at that time, in the first few months, testing how far they can go, how far basically they can work without people's um, consent on people's uh, um, knowledge of what the government was doing. Um, they were taking decisions without consulting with the, uh, with the people, without informing them what they're doing. And of course, um, the people didn't take it. Um, they, they immediately, uh, it depends in Europe, this is, you know, in Europe, we say access to information in the United States is Freedom of Information Act that is put in place. It's like different, um, different countries, especially liberal democracies have different legislation that um, prevents government from, um, uh, um, uh, from keeping uh, information, public information from the people. Uh, and especially in times of emergency, and that's what paper was concluding that you mentioned, is it is it's crucial that people in such times have access to information, know what the government is doing, what measures are taking, and the reasoning behind them. This is this is paramount, not just because people are then aware of what the government is doing, but because in this case. Uh, many people don't understand this. There is a difference between war and um, emergency situation that we are currently experiencing. In war, you don't really um, uh, communicate information in this regard in order for the entire population to follow and actually um, be part of the measures. Because right now in pandemic, we really need to, the government has to appeal to the public for the public to actually follow those measures because we have seen many countries where governments have been too aggressive in terms of not communicating well, to going way too far. And then the people, you know, behind their, their private walls or the, you know, where, you know, no one could see them have not uh, followed these measures in order to um, contain the spread of the virus. So it is crucial for the government and not just to, uh, inform the public what it's doing, but actually to bring the public on its side to you know, fight the pandemic all together. So everyone steps together to fight it. And when I'm mentioning this also, I, I remembered uh, just a call we, we, we issued last week to, the, to all political parties in Slovenia. And it was a public call for all uh, political parties to step together to fight this pandemic because not just in Slovenia but in many countries uh, political parties are just playing their you know usual political games fighting for the turf and forgetting that right now the most important thing is for the entire nation to step together to, uh, you know to and to fight this, the pandemic together mm -hmm. I think you I think you raise a really important distinction um, between war and a pandemic and I think that policymakers maybe too often forget that there's a difference. Um, I think, yeah, that's a really important distinction. And I say that in the context of, so recently in Canada, um, the government will not disclose 
their the terms of their agreements or the prices they paid uh, in procuring vaccines. Um, and so that is obviously a huge disservice to the Canadian voter. It also has a has the really uncomfortable impact of fueling crazy conspiracies and people who believe all sorts of really insane things about the vaccine, all of which are not true, uh, but it really adds fuel to the fire uh, in that regard. Um, what are some examples that you can think of of where governments have maybe gone too far in suppressing information or trying to crack down on information? Well, all authoritarian governments around the world, uh, China was mentioned before, um, China is not doing, uh, you know, it's not handling pandemic in any other way that it's handling any other issue that uh, they perceive as a threat to the government, to the existence of the Communist Party. So all authoritarian regimes are restricting access to information. Um, but then also liberal democracy, as I mentioned earlier, uh, try to go down that path. But luckily, uh, the international community stepped up very quickly. Um, in the case, of, uh, in an example that comes to my mind is um, in case of Hungary that went with emergency measures way too far because uh, it imposed uh, indefinite um, emergency measures um, that were not proportionate. Uh, the international community stepped up, not with threats, but rather to say, hey, uh, this is going too far. Maybe, you know, you should reconsider because this is, you are harming your own people with that, you know. So, um, and as I as mentioned before, all countries are kind of, they can learn from each other uh, because there is no, you know, perfect recipe right now. The best, the, the recipe to deal with a crisis like this, we can of course learn from uh, past uh, pandemics, uh, past crisis when uh, the humanity dealt with uh, issues like this uh, on a great scale. But then at the same time, right now we are all in it and we can all learn from it. And I always appeal to governments, that, you know, maybe you have uh, misstepped on something, but you know, you can always call your, your friend in a neighboring country or in any other country, just call them up. They all know each other more or less. Uh, ask them for best practices, asking how they are dealing with this. And uh, if only, you know, um, governments were doing that because, uh, you know, we scholars, we are following, we, we try to follow as many countries as possible when, you know, on a certain topic. And we notice that sometimes it just feels that national governments are kind of blind to what's going on in other countries, but I don't think it's intentional. I think uh, they are also um, occupied with, with the crisis at home that they don't really reach out. And now because of the pandemic, they don't also meet in person so much. They don't even, you know, they, they don't, in the European Union right now, they don't have consultations. They are kind of, uh, you know, secluded to, to their own um, uh, country. And so the, that kind of uh, dialogue has been missing. And that's unfortunate because that kind of dialogue can help all of us uh, uh, implement best practices. Antonia, in our, in our last minute, I just wanted to ask, you know, what are some of the other topics of research that you'll be focusing on and uh, what can we really look forward to? I know there's a lot of big questions that were discussed today and that you're, you're researching, but it'd be great to get an, an insight into what you're working on next. Sure. So one topic for sure that I'm on the lookout is how economic freedom 
and the extent, the level of economic freedom that we enjoy in individual countries is contributing uh, to the um, to the successful uh, um, fight against coronavirus. Because they, you know, many people wonder whether having economic freedom actually contributes or is detrimental to uh, this fight. Um, well, my 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 bet is that it does help. Uh, significantly, but we will see because studies like this take a little bit. Um, but then also on um, uh, how uh, coronavirus and the measures that have been taken have put at disadvantage minorities, um, because those are those that are the most vulnerable in our society. Are they left behind? Um, are, are, you know, not just, you know, it's not enough to just uh, for the governments to um, pass legislation that is helping them financially, but otherwise uh, they are secluded in their homes. You know, there are situations where um, children, uh, women, or other minorities they are at a disadvantage just because of the pandemic. Because the, what pandemic, what kind of situation pandemic has put them in? So I'm going to be interested in that topic. We've been speaking with Tanya Pochnik. She's the co-founder and president of the Visio Institute, a think tank in Slovenia. You can follow her on Twitter at Tanya, P-O-R-C-N-I-K. Tanya, thanks so much for coming to the program. Thank you. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga960, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. There's been a lot of stuff in the markets, a lot of stuff with crypto that's in the news, and it's something that David and I are particularly interested in and wanted to make sure that we brought in an expert on the topic. So we're speaking with Christy Harkin. Harkin, she's the managing editor of technology at Coindesk, Coindesk.com, a great news resource for everything crypto. So Christy, thanks so much for coming on the radio program. Thanks for inviting me. Perfect. So I would like to get your take, the big news uh, that uh, caused much of the uh, uproar of uh, people who are watching cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin was the purchasing or I guess the unveiling of the fact that Elon Musk and Tesla uh, now have Bitcoin on their balance sheets, upwards of $1.5 billion worth. And uh, this definitely moved the price, it moved the markets. And uh, caused a lot of people to ask a lot of questions. So we figured we'd have you on. Uh, sort of what was your reaction to this? And, and what does it mean to see a, a fairly large and legitimate car company now buying into cryptocurrencies? Yeah, that was, um, that was an interesting move. Uh, although, and, and although it was really big, really prominent, and got a lot of media coverage, uh, he is sort of the next in line now. Um, there have been a few big buyers of crypto lately, big names, shall we say, who've been making uh, a bit of a splash in terms of buying uh, Bitcoin and um, putting it on their balance sheets. You've got, I mean, Jack Dorsey from Twitter came out with it a little while ago. Um, uh, Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy, he's been buying up Bitcoin like crazy. Um, and so Elon Musk is just sort of another one, although absolutely it's been one that's grabbed a lot of attention. Um, a lot of that I think is to do with his uh, social media presence. He's been pumping a few things lately. <laughs> and the interesting thing of course, was that not too long ago, he was saying that Bitcoin was nothing and not worth paying attention to. And um, I, I, all the while, little did we know he was 
out there buying it up. So very interesting move. So on the note of folks who have uh, maybe been outspoken critics of, of Bitcoin, uh, a previous guest of our show was notorious gold bug Peter Schiff, who is no fan of Bitcoin. Um, for those listening who were not with us when we had Peter Schiff, you can find that episode at consumerchoiceradio.com. Um, so folks like Peter really don't like Bitcoin. Can you explain to our listeners from a, let's say a technical perspective, where the value is in Bitcoin, not as an investment, but just the, the idea of a cryptocurrency? Sure. Um, I think a lot of us in Bitcoin are just waiting for the day when uh, Peter Schiff actually recognizes the, uh, the, the, the value of Bitcoin as digital gold. He is a gold bug. Um, he's been predicting the crash of Bitcoin since it was, what, under $100. Um, and, you know, we're now looking at a $60,000 Canadian, uh, $47,000 Bitcoin US. So, you know, I, I don't think it's going to zero the way he thinks it is. And perhaps he will come around one day. We'll, we're, we're holding out hope. But um, where is Bit where does Bitcoin have its value? That is... That's a big question. It's an awesome question. And beyond price, it is a beyond price kind of question. So Bitcoin's value comes from several places. And there's some great books out there um, that I think readers would do well to, uh, to check out. But also Coindesk can certainly help. Coindesk.com has lots of great articles on exactly that point. Um, one thing that, and it's, again, it's a big question, but it comes down to what is money and who makes money and who controls the money that we have and what gives what gives the dollar value. It's valuable because we all agree it's valuable because the government tells us it's valuable, um, but the government also has the ability to mess with it. It has the ability to increase its value, inflation, deflation. It can make as much money as it wants. It can print it all up and it can stop printing it all up. What is it backed by? It's backed by our faith in the government giving it value. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is a digitally controlled, mathematically controlled currency that cannot be messed with. Nobody can mess with Bitcoin. It comes out 10 minutes, roughly every 10 minutes, another 6.5 Bitcoins are released into the world and that in that rate will decrease over time. Um, there will only ever be approximately 21 million Bitcoins. Like that's it. Nobody can make more of them. Um, and, and once you have your Bitcoins, nobody can take them away from you if you are the one holding the keys to it. So there's an element of control. Um, it also, so it has a built-in scarcity. It has a built-in hardness. Um, and a, a built-in supply that over time people are recognizing as valuable, especially as the world becomes stranger and stranger, shall we say, and governments become more and more involved in messing around with the value of money. Um, what gives it value? The, the same thing as any other currency. It's the faith of the people who are using it. It's the desirableness of whatever it is. People, 
ascribe value to the dollar or to gold or to silver or to seashells or rocks simply because they want it and enough people want it. And that's where Bitcoin, as it becomes more and more useful and it is super duper secure compared to so many other cryptocurrencies that haven't been around and tried and tested um, cryptographically the way Bitcoin has, um, it just proves its value every block that gets added to the Bitcoin blockchain. And so on the note of, of what makes Bitcoin, Bitcoin, are all cryptocurrencies made equal? Um, are Do all cryptocurrencies have those functions that you just described? Or are they, um, is Bitcoin alone maybe in its fixed supply and the way in which it is mined? If you could just walk our readers through, I mean, there are countless That's, different types of cryptocurrencies, yeah. everything from from Ethereum to Dogecoin, which is a coin made after a dog meme. Uh, but yeah. I'd love to hear your take on if all cryptocurrencies are in fact made equal. That is another very big question. And I'm going to start by saying no, um, simply because, and, and this is not a value judgment, one versus the other, I'm not going to get into that, but not all cryptocurrencies have the same uh, properties as Bitcoin. For one thing, like Ethereum, it does not have a, a hard supply, a hard cap supply. It, there's, there's infinite, Ethereum's gonna keep on issuing coins. That's, it doesn't have the hard cap. But Ethereum was built for a completely different purpose. It also uses a different type of um, mining. Uh, it uses something called proof of stake or is going to be using proof of stake, whereas uh, Bitcoin is proof of work. And I'm not gonna get into that here because that's just way too much techie stuff, but they have different, uh, they have different ways of securing their blockchains. Um, there are other proof of stake coins out there that have been running and they've got developers who are working on them. Um, and th the thing with different coins is they all have different purposes. Many of them have different purposes. Um, and what you have to do when you're looking at them is think, what is it that I am buying and what is it intended to accomplish? Is it supposed to be a currency? Is it supposed to be a store of value? Or is it intended to be used um, as a utility to, in order to accomplish something else? And that's where sort of Ethereum comes into it, is you, you Ethereum's Ether is used in order to accomplish another kind of task as opposed to uh, be used as currency in the way that we think of money, for the most part. Some people disagree with me on that, but by and large, yeah. So we're speaking with Christy Harkin. Uh, she's the Managing Editor of Technology at Coindesk, coindesk.com here in Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, Christy, if you'll allow me, let's take a, a nice mm -hmm. dive in the nerd pool here for a sec. Uh, let's talk <laughs> use cases, because I think as someone, um, I've been interested in Bitcoin a long time, been giving speeches about it, uh, something that I've written about, and uh, I made the mistake of not holding on to it and becoming a Bitcoin billionaire, but actually using it uh, for everyday things and using the ATMs and uh, sending money abroad and uh, you know connecting with people over that. So you know, I was not the guy who held it forever because I believed in the use cases. But uh, since you're you cover more of the technology side of this. What are a sort of the predominant use cases that we are seeing now? Because right now, when people think Bitcoin, they only think 
um, you know, mining in China with a bunch of, with a million computers, or they think of the price going up and down, and they're not really thinking about the other side of the equation of all the technological possibilities. There's a lot of, now, are we talking use cases for Bitcoin specifically or? For, other- for Bitcoin, just because I know it, it is, is likely the area okay. where they're probably the most, yes. Sure. Right now, the, the narrative is Bitcoin's primary use cases as a store of value. So yeah, going and you know buying a pizza with Bitcoin um, or whatever has proven to be, you know, in hindsight, maybe not the way to go. On the other hand, you have to forgive yourself for that because it, in the early days, it really was being used as let's see what we can do with it. Let's use it. Heck, I spent Bitcoin. I paid for a, I paid for a flight for my son using Bitcoin back in 2014, 2015, 2015, I think. And now I think, oh man, I could have sent him around the world a few times on that, but that's not the point. Um, using Bitcoin, there's nothing wrong with using Bitcoin feel free. Like it it absolutely can be used as a currency, Um, especially now that you're, you're, we've got some layer two solutions that are helping with the scaling um, of the protocol. And we've got um, like, like the lightning network, you can send, you can send smaller amounts of Bitcoin for practically no fees very, very quickly. And I mean, it's a technology that's still got its kinks and it's being worked on, but these are things that are slowly being built. And Bitcoin is a slow burn, slow growth kind of, you know, we don't want to mess with the tech. And, you know, this is not a thing where you've got like an enormous market cap and all this money invested in it. And you want, you don't want to be doing the, you know, move fast and break things (laughs) when you're talking about the Bitcoin blockchain. So the use case to spend it is absolutely there. Um, and there was a push before Christmas, was it Bitcoin? I think on Bitcoin Black Friday, um, there was a, a push you know, to spend your Bitcoin, but then by all means, buy it back. <laughs> you know, If you're gonna spend $20 on something or $100 on something, sure, spend $100 of Bitcoin, but then take that $100 and buy back your Bitcoin so you could hold on to it. Um, because that's how things are going to grow. That's how the ecosystem in Bitcoin is going to grow. Um, but really until that infrastructure gets built out and it makes and is more user-friendly and more secure when, when the second layer solutions, the scaling solutions like Lightning and the wallets become more user-friendly and more secure. Um, in the meantime, uh, there's no, there, you wanna be careful in spending your Bitcoin. So for now, people are saying the use case is as a store of value, as a hedge against inflation, as your the money in your bank account becomes worth less and less and less every day right now. If you, I mean, there are countries with negative interest rates. I think, are you in one of them? Uh, not yet, but Switzerland definitely <laughs> so the neighbor, yeah. Okay, yeah. So the money in your bank account is getting... the buying power of the money in your bank account is decreasing all the time. Whereas the Bitcoin in your Bitcoin wallet, the value, the purchasing power of that against the dollar is going up and up and up. So absolutely, it's a great store of value right now. And yes, the market is volatile. And yes, things are going to make it go boom and bust. But if you're looking at a long-term horizon, shall we say, chances are against the dollar, 
the store of value is where its value is. That, and then you, the other uses for Bitcoin are for um, transferring it across borders um, in, a, in a very uh, efficient manner um, that also is censorship resistant. Well, unfortunately, that wraps up our, our conversation. Uh, but Christy, we're going to have to have you back on the show uh, for more Bitcoin and cryptocurrency analysis down the road. So thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Thank Radio. you. And the Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin TV, we have uh, um, Coindesk TV now is, is on at 3 o'clock Eastern time. You can check out uh, all about Bitcoin if you want to find out more. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Asoski and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on consumerchoiceradio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram, just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
Hallelujah. Glory. 